attitudes are beginning to change. A stigma surrounding dyslexia. Modeled messages were received the by the brain. Dyslexia. It will not hold you back. Dyslexia. It's kind of useful. Anything is dyslexia. 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 My name's Elizabeth Ariffian. My name is Charlotte Edmonds. And you're listening to Move Beyond Words. In this podcast, we're going to amplify the voices of neurodiverse people and unravel living with the complex and multi-layered label of dyslexia. In this episode, we sat down and talked to the celebrated author and historian Stella Tillyard. Stella has been the winner of the Longman in History Today Prize, as well as the Fawcett Prize and many others. She's taught at Harvard, University of California, and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. And today, we learn how Stella moves beyond words through visual aids to generate stories because her words don't sit still. So the way I wanted to kick ours off was to kind of take us back to when I first heard you speak about your dyslexia. Yes. Because I was listening in the car and remember vividly hearing this beautifully poetic story about quite a difficult time within school that many of us with dyslexia can empathise with. But I remember thinking, wow, this writer can really articulate those feelings and experiences into words. And I just want to thank you for bringing that to <laughs> to our attention because we really needed I really needed to hear that and from hearing that our collaboration began our collaboration flourished but you also inspired Elizabeth and myself in speaking out about our dyslexia and that's one of the many reasons why we're here creating this podcast is to hear from people's experiences and learn from them And so let's start by taking us back to the moment you first spoke out about your dyslexia. Yes. Well, I think, um, you know, I'm I'm from an older generation in which the word wasn't used and the condition wasn't recognised. I don't even know if it had been formally um, diagnosed and, as it were, incorporated um, into what would have then been described as a learning disability, obviously, Um, But that may have been the language of the 1970s, and I was at primary school in the 1960s. Um, So I'm not even sure that it, as it were, existed. Um, But, um, and it's like you, I think it was something that I had really pretended hadn't happened to me or wasn't happening to me. And um, it was, in fact, only when I started uh, recording broadcasts, so I started recording broadcasts for Radio 4, um, point of view programs and the first one I did I, I went in I was very very anxious I went into the recording studio and the producer had said to me very blithely well we like to do this in one take if possible and I'm thinking I'm going to stumble over these words I don't know how I'm going to do it in one take and I practiced the talk 40 times at home before I went into the studio. And then before we started recording, I said, look, I'm, I'm not sure how I'm going to manage this. And then I said to her, you know, because I have a problem um, with words, and I, have, I stumble over words, and it's because I'm dyslexic. And, uh, and 
And she said, oh, you know, don't worry. And she was very reassuring. And then she said at the end of the recording, which we managed to do, um, not of course in one take, probably many takes, but she said, "Will you? would you consider doing a point of view programme about being dyslexic? And I said, there's absolutely no way I'm ever going to do that. I don't want to reveal this. I'm a writer. Can you imagine um, if I um, you know, go on air and tell people that I've got a problem with this? And, and then she said, well, my son's dyslexic and I think it would, you know, would be um, you know, a meaningful thing to do. So I went away and thought about it. And after a while, I thought, OK, I can do this. And the way that I can do this is that I can remember very, very clearly being a five-year-old in the way that I think when I've talked to dyslexic young people, often I think people can't really remember. It's kind of suppressed or confused. Or, but I could remember very, very clearly the process and how I overcame it. So I just sat down and wrote that story. And, and actually for me, I have to say, it was very difficult and emotional, and it's still quite difficult for me now. And I, and I think maybe one of the good things about Bell's doing a podcast like this is partly to celebrate that the, with the passage of time, how much positivity has come into um, an area, this area of disability. Because for me, all through being a child and being an adult, it's been, I, I couldn't really see it as anything but a negative. And, and it's quite hard um, for me today, and I had to grapple with the feeling of, of shame that I felt when I was a child, and actually all the time I was up to an adult. Uh, when I went to school, um, primary school, I was very excited to learn to read because I had two older sisters who were accomplished and could already read. So when on my fifth birthday, the teacher said to me, you know, it's time to learn to read. I thought this was absolutely marvellous. And she sat me down and I don't know how long it took, but pretty quickly I realised that I had a problem. And, and I knew it was a problem because I'd look at a word and the word would just seem to just disintegrate or not be there and I would look at it harder and it would seem to go and I couldn't capture it and I couldn't say it and I didn't say anything to anybody and I knew that it was something to be ashamed of. I don't know how I did but I definitely did probably from the re response of the teacher so I, I just struggled and then I, at some point I began to think you know words are the enemy they're my enemy and I've got to fight it I've got to fight them I knew fairy stories in my head where you always had, you know, a princess and, um, you know, had to be rescued or it was always to do with evil and good and, and good had to overcome evil and it was a fight. And I thought, I can do this if I make it like that. And then I began to realise or think or develop an idea that if I looked at the word really, really quickly and then it's like I could take a little photograph of it in my mind, it would, it would sort of freeze it. And then I would be able to kind of like capture it. <laughs> and very gradually, that's what I somehow learned to do. And each word, I would like do it a little bit in advance somehow. And the words would go quieter on the page. And so I think that's how I, I, I taught myself that. And I just sort of battered on until at least short words I could read. Um, and I mean, spelling, as I'll show you later, was a complete disaster from the word go. A writing, my writing was very poor and, and I found it very difficult, I think, to form letters even. But I began to learn to read 
long words, more than three syllables maybe. I was they remained very, very hard. And I and I can remember absolutely dreading when we got to be, I don't know, maybe eight or nine or ten. We would have this um probably you had it too in primary school. Um you'd go round the class and each each child would read it was accepted that you read a paragraph. Oh, gosh. And I would spend the whole time, like, counting how many paragraphs there were in front of me and how many yeah. students. Remember that well. Just, like, trying and trying to read the paragraph so it wouldn't, I wouldn't stumble over too many words. Mm-hmm. And people wouldn't laugh. Because um, it was okay to laugh then. And it's okay to, to make fun of somebody who couldn't, um, who couldn't spell and couldn't read. Did any of your parents or teachers support you at that time? I didn't say anything, um, Elizabeth. That was the extraordinary thing. I sort of knew. I, it was something to be so ashamed of. I never said anything to anybody. So they didn't support me. Um, and in fact, you know, when my school reports would come, it would just say, you know, very lazy, very poor speller, um, very slow, um, you know, really must do better. And so that was terrible. And I remember I used to walk home and they would give you your school report. And I would, I would sort of think if I could open it and just put it down a drain cover, I wouldn't have to show it to my mother because I knew it would say that. And then I knew I couldn't. Um, and and the, the, the teachers used to write on all over the, uh, my school books, which would say atrocious spelling. And then they would say, write your name, because I couldn't spell my own name, write your own name, you know, 20 times. And I would labor away and do that. But it never made a difference, because it didn't make me better at spelling. Um, I don't know how they teach um, that now, or how they taught that to you. But it was, I, I learned how to spell words again, it's just like one at a time and just defeat them. And um, I'm still not terribly good, but you know, I'm obviously functional enough. I think you're functioning pretty well now, Stella, yeah. <laughs> well, yes, it's, um, but I think that I, I, I look back and, I, and I'm pretty sure, I mean, there are um, academics and people who wrote in my family, and, but there were also a lot of artists. And I think, you know, when I look back, I, of course, I've, you know, I've had a wonderful life and career and, and I love what I do, but it's always a struggle. And actually, I don't know if I've told you this before, but when I met Charlotte, I'm going to get quite emotional now. Um, sorry. No, please, <laughs> I, please let I've it. We've had a lot of something. tears. Yeah, sorry? <laughs> We've had a lot of tears. Please yes. feel free to let it out. It's really quite, but when, um, and when I met Charlotte, we met in the cafe in, in um, Clerkenwell, and she started to show me um, like the Pinterest boards and the things that she was thinking about. Um, and, you know, it was all visual. And, and so we started talking or looking at things visually. And it was just, I mean, I always hesitated to think, oh, that's, that person thinks like I do. Mm. Or, you know, because I've always thought, oh, that's, I don't know, that's maybe just a hangover of some of the shame or whatever. But it was like the first time I'd ever done a piece of work with someone where I thought, I, you know, I get this. She gets this. Yeah. Think in this, we can think in this way. It was like a piece of magic. Yeah. And actually, Aww. you know, so I'd like to thank you because it was, it was for me, it was just amazing. Absolutely amazing. 
Well, actually listening um, to a problem with words and just hearing you speak now, it's incredibly visual and you replay scenes as like a choreography, your battle with words and the actual action of physically putting a report down the drain. I just want to know, in terms of your process when you're writing, do you do a similar thing where you create a mood board and do you have a visual process that you then kind of solidify that into words? Yes, I don't, I don't do what you do with all the, the mood boards and images, but um, it is as if I create almost like a film in my mind. And so maybe that is like a choreography. And then what I do is I find the, I f- I find the words to fit to the images and the feelings that come with the images. So it's, and when I talk to, you know, I have a very good friend who's a poet and he works in language, but I don't really work in language. I work in image and sound and feeling. And the words are just like the thing which is going to bring, they are like the sort of transportation system. So I don't have a, my feeling for words is uh, very secondary. And when I look back now, I think, you know, perhaps if dyslexia had been known about and I'd been much more sympathetically treated, I would have become a set designer or something like that, which allowed me to do story, but was where the images came first. So I can't complain, but um, uh, I've worked against the green in a funny way all my life, yeah. I mean, talking of words, the word dyslexia is such a complex word to spell. (laughs) Can you talk to us about the first time you heard that word? I I don't know when I first heard it, but I think I must have been in my late teens or early twenties. And I must have read something about it and probably thought, oh, maybe, and then went, oh, no, I don't want to think about that. I'm going to push that away. But I, I, I vividly remember when I published my first commercial book, which was called Aristocrats, and I published it, and I was in my early 30s, or mid-30s, in, in 1994. And um, one of the, it was a big commercial success, but one of the reviews, which I think was in the Times Literary Supplement, you know, sort of quite an academic, august kind of journal, the, the reviewer decided just to go for the spelling. And it, they just took apart the spelling in the book and said it's appalling and this person doesn't know how to spell and they spelled this word wrong and this word wrong and this word wrong and this word. And the shame when I, when I read that just was overpowering and um, it blotted out. It, I think that's the first time that all my childhood experience came shooting back at me. And it blotted out all the good things that were said. And all I was left with, really, was that feeling that there was something like that I was completely inadequate and I shouldn't have been even attempting to do such a thing. Um, and I'm sure I knew about dyslexia then. Um, and I think probably I surreptitiously read about it because at a certain point, not many years ago, I found a, t- a, a test to give to adults for dyslexia which was about moving the first syllable of a word in your sort of mentally, taking the first syllable and transposing it to another word and taking off the second word, moving the first syllable. Yeah, and I remember trying to do that, just thinking, and I put my son to do it, who would have been about like 
I don't know, 15 at the time. And he was just going, woof, 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 you know. And, and I'm just thinking, I actually can't do this unless I visualise this little syllable, like float it up above, keep it holding there like a little drone, and then like pop it down <laughs> the first one. Meanwhile, with the other syllable, just keeping it there like another little drone. And is it pointing? It took me, and then I realised, yeah, this, I've, I've, over, I've overcome this, but it's sitting there in the background. And then that's obviously probably true for you too. It sort of sits there, doesn't it? The background of everything. Yeah. I love this idea that you're choreographing the words. Yes. You are a choreographer. You use movement and that's amazing. And that's what we obviously say is our language, but it's amazing to see and hear you speak about how when you are reading words and language that actually movement can be a tool, whether that's in your imagination and trying to sort of link a story like the drone Yes. To kind of shift a word or yes. like solve a solution. I think that's a fantastic strategy. Did you feel that audiences and members in your field were surprised to hear of your dyslexia? Um, it's interesting that the response that I got from the radio programme was, was a very large one, but mainly from either experts in the field or uh, members of the general public. Um, I don't think amongst writers, um, most of whom, of course, won't have this problem by definition, <laughs> um, but actually um, many people talk to me about it. I mean, people have obviously teased me about my spelling for years and years and years. Um, and, um, and so I suppose I did then begin to bring up the subject more. And what I've tried to do now, so that when I go and give talks, I mean, for instance, I went actually just before the lockdown to Warwick University, and they, um, it, in the, uh, I think it was creative writing, history, and possibly, yeah, and the history department, I think. Anyway, they put on an afternoon, which was about my latest novel. And they had someone come and talk about the history and someone come and talk about the novel, and then I spoke. And then they'd asked me to read a bit, uh, section. So I'd said at the beginning, and I took, took the opportunity to say to all the audience, and many of whom were students, um, you know, if I stumble, it's because I'm dyslexic. And um, just to let that out there, and actually very movingly, a few students afterwards came up and spoke to me, and there was one boy, and he was really, um, you know, I think he was quite emotional. He said, you've just given me hope. Again, it's going to make me feel quite emotional, because he said, you know, I really struggle with this. And to see that you have got this far has really inspired me this afternoon. So um, I think I make a point now of trying, trying to do that to, to um, you know, because all of us can say it may have held us back, but then it's given us other things. And actually to give hope to young people is incredibly important and valuable and really worthwhile. It really is. And I, and I think that, you know, when Charlotte introduced me to you, just hearing that you were a writer, I really had to process process that a few times. Like, what? She she's yes. a writer? That what? You know that that's incredible, and it is such a feat. Like you've do, just done so well, Stella, to find your own way, find your coping strategies, and um, I wonder what they are, and if you if you're aware of the differences of of those coping strategies from uh, other other writers. Well, I think I have the same method. One thing I've noticed, if I'm really tired um, or I get a bit upset or 
I think that it is, it is as if our coping mechanism sits at the front of our brain and behind is still the same brain that had a tr real trouble, you know, I'd mostly overcome this problem. Um, but when I get really tired, I'll look at a word and it either suddenly, or I'll jump a line or look at a word, it'll go, there'll, there'll be a blank space where that word should be, or I suddenly don't know what it means, or um, it seems to disappear. And, if, and that, I get quite worried um, about that. But for the most part, um, I think I'm, you know, pretty functional. Um, and then, of course, we do have technology and that helps us and spell check and so on. But I will look at a word and it will sometimes still become, A, I can't, um, I don't know what it means. B, I can't read it. I don't, I wouldn't even attempt to spell it. And, and, the, and the more I look at it, the worse it gets. Um, so there's, it's still, I think, there. Um, but for the most part, I don't, I don't um, worry about it. And perhaps, you know, perhaps... It wasn't as severe or didn't come with the level of confusion that I, 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 I know that some people also have. I mean, things like directions, um, ordering systems, I can see uh, I still have problems with. If someone tells me directions verbally, it's very quickly scrambled up in my head. So um, sequential, se sequential um, thinking is not great, I wouldn't say, and never has been. And I suppose I avoid that in my life as much as possible. And I think I, you know, I think that I was alone in my family as far as I know with this problem. And so it, it was an emotional problem for me as much, I think, as time went on, as much as it was a processing problem, it was an emotional problem because my family um, laughed at me. Yeah. So um, it was like a sort of joke. Um, so I think it was that, to over, overcoming that, um, and um, I brought along, I've managed to find an object from my childhood, which um, it actually speaks to the person I've become as well as the problem that I had. So I'm going to show it to you. Perfect. Is there an item you can share with us that you believe helps or represents dyslexia in your life? The, can you see it? MJ. Oh. Yes, MJ. Um, it book says, of birds. Yes, book of birds. And here we have birds like scrambled up into I don't know how many letters. And I think probably I would have been six or so. My writing's very poor. But if you look at here's the this is the first page. Oh, oh. <laughs> Stella, can you try yes. and describe that for the listeners? That's so beautiful. Yes. And so there are two birds. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying to my reader, this is, and I think it is, I think I'm, what I'm trying to write is this is the bullfinch, I think. Um, then underneath, and then I illustrate it, and then underneath it says, it, what, what I'm trying to write is this is the swallow, which you can see, which has the classic dyslexic thing, of the, of, the, of the vowels are swapped around and I've rubbed it out. I don't know how many times to try and write that. And, you know, off I go. It's an, it's, doesn't make any sense. And, and here you can see the back. And, this, and I remember my family. 
I remember going home proudly with this book, and it's all tied up with a little green piece of string, and going back and coming back to my family and saying, I've, you know, I've, I've written the book of birds. I can remember my family howling with laughter. And, it, and this became, whenever they wanted to tease me, this is what they used to um, bring up. How old were you when you drew the book? You see, it's shocking, but I think I am at least six. Because my writing, but my writing is terrible. I mean, six is so young. This is actually quite great, Stella. Mm. <laughs> well, obviously, it was, you know, a bit iconic because... When my mother died, I found this in her, amongst her papers. Do you think the the family having fun with your writing has been something that's fueled your work? I think um, I think it made me. I think it gave me this attachment to the difficulty of language and the struggle with it, instead of it being easy. And that's why I feel this sort of somewhat regret because I feel that the profession I've chosen I'm it's always difficult and you know when I met Charlotte and we were looking at those things I suddenly thought it it didn't have to be like that it you know there could have been I mean you two are doing what your brains have adapted and you're doing what's come naturally and with, with your talent to your brain and so how lovely that's like you, you know that's like seeing the water and swimming in it um and um i guess that i i was i'm more like sort of you know climbing the rock face all the time but but you know otherwise um so i think it did i think it bonded me to the struggle i absolutely i think it bonded me to the struggle from the time i was really small um and I, and i must have loved stories and, um, but, but I think, and I think that's why I became a writer. Absolutely. I think I became a writer because I was dyslexic. You're leading the path for so many other dyslexic writers. And although the path has been such a struggle for you, I hope you can recognize that you've created a path for people that they didn't know was there before mm. you took on that, took on the challenge. You know, I think actually, Elizabeth, I'm sure there must always have been um, dyslexic writers, probably. Um, And maybe before spelling was regularised and maybe it was a little bit easier. um, I'm sure that I'm sure there were always people who loved loved stories and who, you know, who tried to write them. And probably there were always people who wrote uh, um, from the visual side as well. and it's just we don't we probably don't hear from them very much, but I'm sure there are lots and lots of them now, and um, and I'm absolutely thrilled, you know, to meet you two young women for whom it's something to celebrate, and not something to feel ashamed of, and it, and for me it's still I still struggle with the shame of I mean actually to look at that book for me is, again when I found it I felt quite a little bit sick. <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, it, it would have been—I guess it would have been lovely to have um, uh, been more supported. But it's lovely also now to be able to do this work with you. I mean, it's just been a really fantastic meeting for me. As a historian, I would love to know 
if you came across any cases of dyslexia in your research studies. Were there any any famous figures that were of interest? Well, Charlotte, not that I noticed, actually. Um, and of course, when I've been doing work that's using manuscripts from the 18th century, then spelling and, is, and writing is becoming very formalised at that time. But lots of people, especially the less formally educated, they, they will even actually vary the spelling of their own name sometimes. And, um, and grammar is less kind of, you know, like um, really kind of pinned down. And there are lots of contractions that people use, making the words shorter. And so I, I think probably people could um, disguise it more easily. And certainly, certainly they didn't have any more than when I was, you know, five or six years old. There wouldn't have been a language in which to, to, to discuss it. So I remember when my daughter Grace was learning to read in Italy and she was slow and, um, and I thought, oh God, I think she's probably dyslexic and she probably has a touch of it, definitely. And I talked to the teacher and they said, we don't have dyslexia in Italy, it doesn't exist. <sighs> yes. Um, and she said, well, you know, we're a phonetic language, we assemble the word syllable by syllable, there is no dyslexia. So they were some decades behind. So that would have been in the 1990s. And now I, I'm at, they do certainly have a dyslexia association and um, organization and training and so on. But, but that was, so they were, that was the 90s. And, and what, what I experienced was in the 60s and 70s. And I can't, I can't imagine in the, in the deep past um, that, that probably maybe people would have been thought of as simply eccentric or simply incapable. Um, and maybe they would have been turned in certain ways more easily if there weren't formal, so many formal exams and qualifications and all that sort of thing. They would have become something more visual or would have done things with their hands. Or, um, and so maybe some people were more, more easily accommodated. But certainly I suppose that until you have a, a word and a concept and a description of a mental process, it sort of isn't there, even though lots of people must have had it. Yeah. yeah. Do you think your experience with dyslexia has supported Grace's? Well, she wasn't ever formally diagnosed, and but certainly I think probably, definitely, I would never have um, laughed at her spelling or, you know, I'd have just been, it was encouraging. And, um, and she's uh, she's a very good she's she's got qualities that I don't have so she's not nearly as extreme and she's got a very good abstract mind whereas my mind is very image based and very concrete yes i hope that actually i would would have been abs i was absolutely sympathetic and just you know helped as much as i could it's another amazingly valuable thing that you're doing in your work, both of you, which is that you're, you're finding ways to embody that experience. And that somehow is very immediate. I mean, maybe because we, we, maybe it's me and thinking that the words are dangerous and I don't like them and I would like to leave them behind. But embodying the experience and then, as it were, um, finding a way in performance uh, with, with images, with the light, with... Um, but. But to do that, actually, I think that can transmit to an audience incredibly powerfully what that feels like and um, 
um, and how the mind works. Because you're translating it into another medium, which isn't language, but is equally, if not more, forceful, I think, because it carries that emotion incredibly well. Thanks, Stella. I, I, I hope we, you know, we can keep keep creating pieces that do resonate because I know that's that's been ch- the way that Charlie and I have been able to understand our dyslexia is through that movement because words weren't necessarily available. Um, exactly. And so it exactly. is, it's, it's so important. important to find your medium. Like it doesn't yeah. have to be dance. It doesn't have to be writing or, you know, it's whatever works for you and, and being brave enough to dig deep and find out what that is. Uh, that's, that's the, the important bit. I would love to know what advice would you give to your younger self in regards to your dyslexia? I think be kinder, you know, be less hard on yourself um, and perhaps speak out earlier and see it as a positive and um, less a source of shame. All those things, I think. And I suppose that's a message that we now we've begun to speak about it and in your podcast and in your work is a message actually that can go to all people who um, have dyslexia. Mm. And what advice would she give to you now? I think my younger self would say, oh, just, you know, go off and learn how to do set design and enjoy yourself working collaboratively and visually. I think that's what my younger son Wow. Say. Not that, not that um, I don't love what I do, hmm. but um, I think just uh, probably my natural bent is, is always a little forced in my work. Um, so it's not a regret. I don't have a regret, but I think my young self might have just said, don't, don't, you know, don't worry about, don't worry about trying to prove people are laughing at you that you can do this. Go and do your thing, you know. Maybe there's um, a collaboration there, Stella, with your yeah. younger self and us on our next dance piece. <laughs> yes. Yes, <laughs> please. But that's what's wonderful because you are doing your thing and that's just fantastic. Thank you. And, and finally, what does dyslexia mean to you now? Um, well, right now, it's, it's now brought me this just... Um, I think maybe an opening up of new avenues to explore. And uh, and I, I did discover that actually, you know, and I, I know this from teaching, of course, but I, I, I can see the, the absolutely, you know, four or five brains can make something absolutely beautiful, which five, four or five separate brains, you know, can't do. Collaboration is something absolutely wonderful. Um, it means an opening up and um, something you know very positive. So I'm very grateful to you girls for what you've um, what you're doing actually. I mean, you were one of the reasons that inspired me to get talking about my dyslexia, and here we are. It it's brought this whole community together, or at least we're starting yes, on this journey. Like Liz said, we've got the spade and we're just kind of popping it in the sand. But it's amazing to hear your journey and it definitely fuels me with so much warmth and encouragement. So thank you so much for chatting with us. It's been lovely. Thank you. 
Thanks, Stella. Charlie, what did you get from this episode? Her sheer determination and resilience that she had at school and she was her own teacher I'm so impressed by it at such a young age she found those strategies because words have, are very much a part of her life and in her career so she's had to jump through so many obstacles to get to where she is and I think that's just amazing It seems like she went through a really hard time with not having a huge amount of support around her and I can really relate to people laughing and and she doesn't really hold that against people. She's uh, fueled that into driving her through and helping others. It, I think that's the that's such a positive and the right approach is is not being like oh you don't understand and and and, and feel anger towards that because I know a lot of you know, we all have had really difficult situations, but to kind of really come at that from that point of view. It's like taking responsibility, isn't it, for Mm -hmm. yourself and the way that you react to what's being thrown at you. Yeah. Um, Rather than blame, it's more, how do I deal with this as as a way to move forward rather than being stuck in blame, and pointing the finger elsewhere. Instead, you know, reflect on how you can grow and how how you can benefit others, which, you know, she's doing so much of. Um, I'm just so inspired by her and her journey and, and what she's contributing from her dyslexia. One thing to add is that I love how she is a writer and by the sounds of it, her process is incredibly creative and uses movement even if it's not physical movement she visualizes that and i find that really fascinating there is creativity there with many people who have dyslexia and you don't have to be known as an artist or a creative to use it as a tool in your work and just how vital creativity is So far, every interview that we've done all links creativity. You know, everyone's yes. got their way of yes. um, moving beyond words in some capacity for their discipline. And that's been really interesting to hear and, and learn more about. If you have any questions you want answered, please send them to info at movebeyondwords.co.uk. And please keep sharing how you move beyond words through our hashtag movebeyondwords. Until next time, we've been Charlotte Edmonds and Elizabeth Arifian. This has been Move Beyond Words. To support the show, please remember to subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. This podcast is made with the wider Move Beyond Words team. Podcast production is by Niall Kalini-Taylor. Move Beyond Words project manager is Hannah Granger-Gibbs. Art and design is from Alex Colhan. PR and social media manager, Sean Gilling. And original music by Tom Parker. 
This series is funded by Arts Council England.